Hello and welcome to Joe's Boys. This is a podcast for little women, little men, and everyone in between. I'm your host, Peyton Thomas. I'm the author of the novel Both Sides Now. I'm also a writer for publications like Vanity Fair and the New York Times. And I'm here today with my very special guest, Hannah Sio. Hannah is a science journalist and writer based in Brooklyn. They were recently a fellow for the Well Desk at the New York Times reporting on science, health, and the environment. Their work can be found in Wired, Scientific American, and The Walrus, among other publications. Hannah is a graduate of New York University's Science, Health, and Environmental Reporting Program. They are the perfect person to cover today's chapter, which sets health and the environment side by side as we hope to cure Beth by going to the beach. Hannah, welcome to the show. How are you? Hi, I'm so happy to be here. Thank you so much for having me, Peyton. Yes, and I hope that you're doing well. It's a little smoky here in Toronto <laughs> as we are recording. I, ho- I hear that it's a little hazy in New York as well. Oh, yeah, the sky is fully gray. Oh, gray boy. and yellow. <laughs> All right. Donate to your local climate change offsetting program. Yes. Without, yeah, without further ado, Hannah, what is your relationship to Little Women? So I have this long storied relationship with Little Women. I first encountered the book as other of your guests have as a middle schooler or maybe in late elementary school. But I read this abridged version, some sort of abridged version that didn't have all of the plot points, did not have the same text. And I disregarded it. And I was just like, what a totally dumb, silly book. And I just didn't want anything to do with it. And then I rediscovered Little Woman in high school after I was watching the entirety of Friends. And I got to that episode where (laughs) Rachel and Joey are talking about books they love, and then they swap books, and Joey reads Little Woman, and he's so touched and moved by Beth dying. And I was like, what? (laughs) I don't remember any of this. So (laughs) I was fully confused, went back to the book, found the proper full text, and loved it. And I've loved it ever since. I've watched several versions of movie adaptations. I'm very invested. <laughs> yes. Well, I love that for you. I lo- You're not the only person to say that the abridged version was their way in, nor that the Friends episode <laughs> was the enlightening thing that brought them back. I myself, I've never taken the plunge on Friends. That's sort of one of my pop culture gaps along with The Simpsons, which I hope to rectify in the future. But also a Little Women gag, I understand, in The Simpsons. <laughs> no way. Yeah, there's a, I guess the bartender is exposed as being a big softie who reads books to sick children in hospitals on the weekends. And there's a cutaway shot of him reading the last page of the book and going, and then they realized they were no longer little girls. They were little women. It's <laughs> <laughs> so not, not a line in the book. <laughs> But many people, when they went to see the Greta Gerwig movie, they were waiting for the line and they're like, oh, that's the Simpsons. Yeah, yeah. And there's a whole Twitter meme now that's like, Bob Odenkirk just needs to go into every movie and announce the title of the movie. (laughs) This mission will take seven samurai. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I love Yeah, we should pay. Yeah, there should be a Bob Odenkirk fund. He should be in every movie. I completely endorse that. Now, Hannah, which March sister are you? Keep in mind, Lori is a March sister. Yes. So I don't want to be the cliche and just say that I'm Joe, but though I do fully think that I'm a Joe. <laughs> I do, however, think that I am a Joe son and an mm. Amy Moon. Yes. And I feel this way because I feel like a central tension in both of their character developments is their ambition. Joe <laughs> is ambitious in this very ideological way where she wants 
her merits and her praise to come from virtue and achievement alone. And it's very principle based, whereas like Amy is also very ambitious, but in a very pragmatic, social, worldly way (laughs) where she understands She understands the nuances of the social dance. She knows who she has to speak to, how she has to comport herself, and very much still has that ambition, but she doesn't mind or even excels in going about it in a very world-based way. And I think I have both those wolves inside me. So (laughs) that's why I say Joe, then Amy Moon. (laughs) Yeah. You could say inside us are four wolves each March sister. (laughs) Yes, exactly. (laughs) No, I think you get to the heart of something so crucial with the similarity and simultaneous difference between Joe and Amy, which is Joe is like, I am going to make this happen, but it's going to be on my terms. I'm not going to compromise for anyone. And Amy is like, I am all about the art of the compromise. Let's sit down. Let's make a deal. Let me grapple with what I have to do to get there. And that is just things that Joe is not willing to give up on her way to what she wants, which is very interesting. Yeah. Joe is presenting you with her work and herself. And she says, you must accept me because don't you see that I am good and I am virtuous and I am also talented. Whereas Amy is always just watching the world around her and and trying to edit herself to fit the narrative of the world around her. And, And I think in some ways, Amy ends this book being more successful than Job. We don't have to get into that right now because we are very much focused in this chapter on another March sister. Hannah, would you like to recap chapter 36, Beth's Secret? Yes. Okay. So in Beth's Secret, essentially, Joe has come back from being a governess for that family and returns and finds that Beth is kind of this shadow of her former self. She, It's very clear to her in that moment that Beth is not doing well She is distraught about it and doesn't think that the rest of her family is kind of clued into it and suggests that she takes her little pouch of money that she got from selling her stories. She takes that money. She takes Spirits Beth away to the seaside and they are talking a lot about, you know, about the fact of Beth's deterioration. Beth doesn't have to confess anything to Joe because Joe sees it and Beth can see that Joe sees it. And they are just talking about what it means to die and that Beth is ready for it, supposedly. And they are just wrapped up in each other at the seaside until they go home. And once they go home, their parents can clearly see. It's now clear to them what how Beth yep. is not doing very well. So it's a very... It's a rough chapter. This is not going to be a sunshiny, fun chapter for us to talk about, I don't think. We go very deep on Alcott's philosophy about death and dying, which is sort of conveyed through Beth as a mouthpiece. We also, we get some striking moments of Joe stepping into a masculine role in the family to help them cope with this grief. But we, you know, we also, a good portion of this is just a single conversation that takes place in a striking location, which is on a beach. And so, Hannah, I think... Let's begin by setting the scene for us. Joe has come back. She has some money in her pocket. She decides that she wants Beth to get strong and well, even though she can tell that Beth is deteriorating and she is grappling. She's like, do I take her to the mountains? Do I take her to the beach? They wind up going to the beach. And what can you tell us about the history of sick people going to the beach to recover? Where does that come from? Yeah, I'm not sure where the where it originates from, but it was definitely a trend that happened, especially in the 19th century, all the way up until the early to mid 20th century, where 
people who were unwell, it was thought that the brisk, briny air and a splash of cold seawater would do you some good and reinvigorate your body. And there were sanatoriums that were placed along seasides. There were various clinics and hospitals for all people, really, of all socioeconomic statuses. A lot of wealthy people would take to the sea, but they would also put a lot of sickly, poor children in institutions by the sea in an effort to get well. Yeah. And I think you were saying re-speech sort of developed from one of those facilities. It was sort of a beach for the sick that people avoided because everyone who went there was sick. And then it evolved from that into a queer beach. Can you tell me more about that? Yes. So I learned about this while fact-checking my friend's book. My friend Sabrina Imbler wrote this book of essays called How Far the Light Reaches, which is an essay book, a collection of essays about various sea creatures and their life and identity as a queer Asian person. And there's an essay in that book that talks about re-speech and how back in the early 19th century, there was this sanatorium institution there for sickly children with tuberculosis. And it was supposed to be a heliotropic medicine, the idea that you would get sun, you would get sea air, but it was kind of sectioned away in this supposedly gross area of the beach. People who went to the beach in New York didn't go to that area because it was dirty and gross and there were a lot of sickly people. And then over the years, it got turned into various different kinds of medical institutions until it was finally closed down. And then around that time, because it was still considered the unsavory, undesirable section of the beach, that's where queer beachgoers would go and just celebrate and be openly queer out in that section of the beach. And that continues to this day, pretty much. I mean, there's been some closure issues with re-speech lately, but Mm -hmm. it very much evolved from a place where outcasts and the sick and the dying go to a place of queer rejuvenation, which I think is very cool. And now absolutely, we're also looking at why couldn't Beth convalesce in home in Concord? Why did she have to leave and go out to the mountains or the beach? And Concord at the time was not an industrial center the way Boston was. It was close enough that Alcott could walk. She could make the journey on foot within a day. And sometimes she did, although she was like, my legs are killing me. I walked for five hours. But, you know, it wasn't the massive polluted industrial center. However, thinking about forms of pollution that existed then, but no longer, obviously, this was the era of horse-drawn <laughs> right, transport. And we have to think about the impact on air quality of just manure everywhere. <laughs> <laughs> And the smells. And I think, and that was a factor that I had not considered as being part of maybe we should get out of here for a while. Yeah, I know. So. <laughs> Especially because in the movie adaptations of the book, mm-hmm. it always portrays the March home being situated in this lovely yeah. grassy air. There are glens and knolls and lovely tree laden mm-hmm. paths. And you don't really consider it being maybe not a maybe a gross place. Maybe it's just not a nice place to be. (laughs) (laughs) No, actually, Orchard House, I mean, you go today and it's perfectly preserved. It's beautiful. It's quaint. Alcott hated that house and called it Apple Slump. It was actually, it was this falling down old house. And somehow, I mean, I'm not a construction expert by any means, but there was another falling down old house a little ways up the hill. And they kind of picked that part up, brought it down the hill and smushed the two houses together. So it was very much, it was not an architectural marvel. It was not worth a lot of money. It was maybe not actually an ideal person for a sick, an ideal place for a sick person to recover and get well. However, one super fun thing about Orchard House is that 
there was a wellspring right beneath the kitchen. So the marches had, sorry, the Alcots had running water way before anyone else did. (laughs) Wow, that's fascinating. Also, there's something very whimsical and delightful about this patchwork house. (laughs) Yeah, no, completely. And you can see it. You you walk around and look at the architecture. You can see where they just kind of nailed the two houses together. (laughs) Like, that's good enough. (laughs) (laughs) That's great. I actually really love that. (laughs) Yeah, I definitely recommend visiting Orchard House if you can and taking a look around. But certainly also very cramped living quarters, very small rooms, very low ceilings. You can see why going to the beach, open air, wide open spaces, that would be kind of the move, right? However, where this book differs from the illness of the real Elizabeth Alcott, Elizabeth Alcott did recover at home, right? The family at this point, kind of one of the narrative innovations of this chapter is that Joe has money. And at this point, that was very much not the case for Lou Alcott. She was maybe making $30, $50 a year from selling stories. A lot of her income was from sewing and teaching. She had not yet kind of broken out in literature. The success of hospital sketches after her Civil War service, that was well in the future at this point. So Elizabeth Alcott recovered in this small, stinky home. (laughs) Okay. I'm going to read to you, I have some journal entries from Lou Alcott talking about nursing Elizabeth who'd had scarlet fever several years earlier. And at this point was, her condition was deteriorating rapidly. This was several years later. So these are journal entries from January of 1858. Alcott writes, Lizzie much worse. Dr. G says there is no hope, a hard thing to hear, but if she is only to suffer, I pray she may go soon. She was glad to know she was to quote unquote, get well, as she called it. And we tried to bear it bravely for her sake. We gave up plays, Father came home and Anna took the housekeeping, that's the IRL Meg, so that mother and I could devote ourselves to Elizabeth. Sad, quiet days in her room and strange nights keeping up the fire and watching the dear little shadow try to while away the long, sleepless hours without troubling me. She sews, reads, sings softly and lies looking at the fire, so sweet and patient and so worn, my heart is broken to see the change. And then later on, Alcott came back to that journal entry and wrote in the margins, Joe and Beth. So, lest you doubt the explicit autobiographical parallels, (laughs) Alcott Mm -hmm. is kind of drawing a circle around this entry. What strikes do you? What similarities do you see between that journal entry and what we hear from Beth in this chapter? I mean, it's very clear that whether you're talking about Lou Alcott or whether you're Mm -hmm. talking about Joe, it's so clear that there's an intense love and an obligation for you know their sister's care and comfort. That's pretty remarkable. I don't know if I think it's better or I don't know if I prefer to think of Joe and Beth as their own fictional duo or yeah. whether I whether it's like more, less whether it's more comfortable to think of them as an isolated imagined duo of sisters mm-hmm. or whether it's less comfortable to think of them as a direct analogs of Lou and their sister. But yeah, I don't know. It's very, it definitely sheds a new light on Beth's whole health arc yeah, for sure. Yeah. I think I was very struck by this word, the dear little shadow already. She's not, she's still very much alive, but she is just not, she's not fully herself anymore. Even she still has a couple of months left, but even at this point, she's being described as this half piece. I think You just got into some of the important similarities, the degree to which this is straight up autobiography. I think maybe one important difference here is this was in, Alcott wrote this journal entry like in the absolute thick of it. And when I say this is a January 
1858 journal entry. This was the point where Alcott would write one journal entry a month at the end of the month, <laughs> kind of being like, this was what my month has been like. So this is not a play-by-play. This is, she's like, I'm in it. This is what kind of the day-to-day has been for me looking back on this month. And then Little Women at this point, by contrast, is it's a decade after Elizabeth's death. And I think a lot of what we read, kind of the serenity of Beth's attitude about dying, I think comes from just Alcott 10 years later being maybe more at peace with what happened and using Beth as a vessel for the serene decade later, I am no longer suffering. (laughs) I don't know Mm -hmm. quite what I'm saying, but there's just a lot more distance. 10 years have gone by between the event and now, which I think contributes to maybe some of the detachment that Beth seems to feel from the fact of her impending death. What do you think? Mm -hmm. I don't begrudge Lou Alcott for trying to write this story or this part of the story as a way to process or become more fully at peace with the passing of their own sister. I don't know what the chapter itself, I don't know what it's saying necessarily to (laughs) other readers about how to comfort a death, a dying sister or what it means when you lose a family member. When I think about it more as this is kind of a chapter or a narrative arc that's written by Lou for Lou, then it it feels more palatable or understandable. Yeah, completely. I think understanding it that way is kind of the only way I can get past the fact that Beth is comforting Joe. Yeah, there's a lot of that. <laughs> there's a lot of that. And it's it should not be, in my humble opinion, it should not be the responsibility of the dying person to comfort their loved ones. I kind of feel that <laughs> the responsibility should be the other way around. But, you know, I, I think I just in this, I just have to understand Beth here as a puppet <laughs> that Alcott is using to like talk to her past self and being like, you know what, this is how you've come to think of it and process it and live with the fact that your sister is gone. Mm-hmm. Which was really, I think we've spoken before in this series about kind of the history of suicidality in the Alcott family. We know that Bronson Alcott attempted suicide after the failure of his commune, which I clown on a lot, but I will not in this context. And actually, Louisa May Alcott's suicide attempt came in October of this year, in 1858, after Elizabeth had died. Her consideration of suicide, if not her attempt, she kind of scratched out, removed from her diary, the references to the actual suicidal ideation. We have some surviving letters where she speaks about that. She writes the experience to various, she writes it into various other of her writings, but whatever she was thinking in the moment in October, that's gone. That's not there anymore. So I think at least some of this, there, Alcott had perspective 10 years later that she did not have that year in the immediate months following Elizabeth's death. And I think the most charitable read I can give to this chapter is it's speaking to that 10 years ago, Lou, and being like, you are Joe on that beach is you 10 years ago, Lou, and this is how you're feeling. And this is how I'm going to try to pull you through it. Mm -hmm. It's still... It's definitely a strange dynamic with them on the beach. Given that, I don't know, Beth in this chapter almost functions as a wise sage to me. And this is something that happens, I feel, a lot in the book, which is oftentimes very charming that parts of the book are very real. They're about like real social interactions or real moments between siblings or parents or whatever. And But other moments in the book feel like a fable. And this chapter to me feels almost like a fable where Beth is a wise arbiter of higher truths 
and yeah. <laughs> acting as this wizard of or this angel of peace and virtue and just yeah. dispelling all of these noble truths about death and passing and acceptance to Joe, despite the fact that in reality, <laughs> she would oh. have been a very sick, probably scared, young, younger girl. <laughs> yeah, no, and exactly. And in the real life document, we don't hear about Beth gathering everyone around to give a sermon on <laughs> the yeah. meaning of life, right? We She's sewing and looking at the fire. There's another in the February 1858 journal entry of that year, Alcott writes, Lizzie makes little things and drops them out of windows to the school children, smiling to see their surprise, which is, it's lovely, but it's also not gather around school children for I will tell you <laughs> how to embrace yeah. death and dying. There's a real departure from realism here. I think coming as this novel did, after the Civil War, right? I think the utility of this chapter was maybe to help young children who had lost family members cope with that loss. I think what we're seeing here is, again, not the perspective of a very young girl who was dying, but of Lou Alcott, who is an adult and has seen some shit. And <laughs> not only Elizabeth's death, but at this point, the American Civil War, up close and personal in a hospital for soldiers of color, seeing you know some of the least privilege of the war, get sick and die, right? She has seen some shit. <laughs> and that's where the perspective is coming from. So, so far, we've been giving it a very charitable read. <laughs> I think you could also, I at my most, okay, this chapter is fine. I think, okay, I can read this as maybe in line with the hospice movement, the notion of having a good death, destigmatizing death, helping people be comfortable as they face terminal illness and even confronting Joe's attitude that's like, nope, you're not going to die. I'm going to get you well again. Stop saying that. Beth can kind of be like, you know what? That's not helpful, <laughs> right? Because at that point, she can feel that it's untrue. Her illness is terminal. She knows that. And she's able, I think, to express to Joe that saying this, we're just going to keep fighting is not helpful because that part of it is done, which that's a very difficult thing to confront, right? Mm-hmm. And I understand the impulse to just keep holding out for ho- on ho- onto hope till the very last possible minute. But I do think with terminally ill people, there comes a time when the focus has to just be on accepting what is to come. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. I- yeah, I think that's, I think you're right in that. If we think about this from a hospice, end of life care sort of lens, it makes sense that the focus would then be not on saving, quote yeah. unquote, saving this person's life or Beth's life. It's about how do we give her the best moments that are, you know, what she wants, gives her as much fulfillment as possible before her inevitable passing. And because like denial won't really help anyone. And I think that's what Beth is really trying to say when the moments when she's comforting Beth in that you have to be, Mm -hmm. she says, she says a lot about willingness, willing to live or willing to, I forget, but yeah, I don't know if it's all, it's just tough because especially end of life care or is such a complicated idea. And there's so many things, there are no fundamental truths about it. You know, it's a very case by case situation. Yeah. Especially tricky here when we have the double lens of Beth and Joe and then Lou and Yeah, exactly. Yeah. The perspectives seem to be shifting from line to line in some cases. And where where that kind of okay end of life care hospice movement, where that read kind of gives out for me is where Beth is being incredibly hard on herself in this chapter. We've talked before about how a lot people remember Beth as the sweet one, the good one, the angel of the family. When a lot of the time you read those early scenes and she is in a corner being like, I'm so stupid. I'm so dumb. I'm so clumsy. I can't do anything right. 
And a lot of the tenderness that we associate with Beth actually comes from people soothing her and telling her that, no, you are good. (laughs) Mm -hmm. There are moments where Beth is too afraid to go out and socialize with other people. She doesn't want to play the piano around other people because she doesn't think that she sounds good. Her pet bird dies and she is unconsolable, inconsolable. She's like, I killed my bird. I can never have another pet bird. I'm the worst person alive, right? So even in this scene where, as you say, she's being the sage, wise wizard being like, Joe, do not grieve, <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> not deny the truth. You know, she's got a pointy hat and a staff on the beach and she's yeah. <laughs> suddenly grown a very long beard. What's happening? You know, she's saying, I never imagined myself growing up. I just thought I would be stupid little Beth. Stupid little Beth are words that she uses <laughs> in this chapter. That's incredibly hard to read at a moment where Beth is so vulnerable. I think for all the grace and tenderness and comfort that she's giving to Joe, she's not really giving any of it to herself, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think it's also even the sage wisdom of Beth Mm -hmm. in this chapter is a little even at odds with that, what you're talking about, I think, too, because the sage wisdom feels like it's coming from a place of knowing and certainty and confidence and Mm -hmm. security. And in while in the rest of the book, we don't see any of that. She's definitely a very insecure person. She doesn't have any firm thoughts on most things, I would say. Uh, And she, I don't know, I don't know if anywhere in the book she would have have the wherewithal to make such certain statements. No, even the thing that she says here about, I never imagined myself growing up, that's parallel. Even the early castles in the air chapter, they're all talking about what they want to do when they grow up. And Beth is like, well, I just want to hang out at home with my family. (laughs) She doesn't seem to see a future for herself. Part of that just is a consequence of the fact that the real life Elizabeth you know, never got to see adulthood, right? I'm very moved whenever I read about Elizabeth in kind of early journals because she did, you know, she was a quiet person. She was reserved, but she loved to play with May, who was the real life Amy. We hear a lot about kind of their shenanigans. There's a lovely little aside in one of Alcott, Lou Alcott's journals about how Beth is having a little romance. So she, you know, she was living in a pretty full adolescent life and it ended very soon, you know, she never really got to live to adulthood. So this kind of coming of age narrative naturally excludes her, right? Alcott doesn't give Beth some grand dream that fails to come to fruition, right? And the real sadness for Beth, she says, I think I'll be homesick for you even in heaven is not getting to be part of this family unit anymore. It's not, maybe I could have seen the world or maybe I could have written an opera, right? There's none of that. Mm -hmm. It's just, I won't get to be with my family anymore. Since Beth's passing is mm-hmm. in the second part of the book, yeah, yeah. do we know whether Lou Alcott even intended on including or writing about Beth's death? Yeah. So that's a big question. I think it it's meaningful to me that in the first book, Beth lives, right? And has this miraculous recovery and even weakened is strong enough to run across the floor to greet her dad and throw her arms around him, right? I think there was maybe a bit of wish fulfillment there. The obviously with the real life Elizabeth, it was a long illness. She did not immediately die of scarlet fever. It was sort of a, it seemed like it was very much a progressive illness after that initial recovery. It could also, I mean, I again, just knowing what we know about mental illness in the Alcott family, there could have been elements maybe of disordered eating in Elizabeth's psyche that could have been a contributing factor. There might have been suicidality. There's sort of a lot we don't know both about the real life Elizabeth's illness and. Beth's illness, right? It remains a big mystery. It's something that people like to read into and interpret. We just had 
Anne Boyd Rue on the show, and she has a very compelling sort of theory about Beth as suffering from disordered eating. We never see Beth consuming food with the rest of the family. And in fact, in one very notable early scene, the dead bird that I talked about before, she's sitting and holding the bird and crying over it while the rest of her family has this sumptuous lunch, (laughs) which feels pointed, right? So I, I think maybe where this chapter becomes upsetting for me is some of the sentiments that Beth expresses here are kind of the ones that are, you know, warning signs that suicidality experts tell us to look forward to. When someone who's been very sad and angry and troubled is suddenly calm and at peace and giving away their possessions to other people, talking about how it's inevitable and it's just going to happen and they can't stop it. Those are giant red flags waving, right? So it's hard for Mm -hmm. me to understand quite how to read the attitude that Beth has here in this chapter. It's (laughs) I go back and Mm -hmm. forth. I'm like, this is a creditable you know, supportive of the hospice movement. It's anticipating that. And this is, <laughs> Beth is suicidal. We need to <laughs> step in. Yeah. It also could just be, I yeah. don't know, I don't know how educated or learned Joe, mm. I mean, I mean, Lou Alcott yeah, yeah. was about, you know, the signs and symptoms of suicidality. So it mm-hmm. might just be a faithful recreation of existing things yeah. that they yeah. remember, but mm-hmm. weren't, they weren't aware. I don't know. Who knows? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> But what you said about eating is really interesting because it just kind of all harkens back to Beth as being this very virtuous, pure figure. She's yes. she's someone oh whose body and soul, she's someone whose soul is so pure and virtuous, mm-hmm. while even while her body is deteriorating. So she doesn't every, anything that's associated with any sort of sin or worldly mess is totally gone from her if she, yeah, she's yeah, not eating yeah. she passes away before womanhood so she's still a girl she's still a pure virtuous girl she is you know quiet she's at peace she's happy or seemingly happy mm-hmm. supposedly happy despite her illness and all of that just kind of points back to the same as the shining white figure of beth yeah exactly in in the midst of illness completely and i think food especially it was so wrapped up in this very particular alcott philosophy of there are certain foods that are pure and can make you pure and other foods that are bad and evil and immoral and impure this was the fruitlands commune right we're going to have no animal based food and no animal labor on this commune. We're going to till all the fields by hand. Didn't work out for them. (laughs) We'll set that aside. You know, but we read, this is when Alcott was a very young child. And in diary entries from those days, she's like, well, had bread and water for dinner, had an apple for lunch. And it's like, oh, baby, no. (laughs) There was this very strict vegetarian diet, no spice, no meat, no eggs, or which is not only unhealthy, right? Like they were not (laughs) getting all the nutrients they needed to grow. And notably, when Fruitlands failed, because it had just been, it wasn't sustainable. It was not sustainable to suggest that the community could support itself through a winter with no animal labor or you know, no wool for warm clothing, right? That kind of thing. When it failed, Bronson was despondent and attempted suicide. And the way he did that was by refusing food for several days. And it was oh, interesting. what Alcott describes is this protracted process of their mother trying to get Bronson to eat something and him just refusing and refusing for days on end until finally he was persuaded to eat. <laughs> it just it feels highly relevant as we're discussing this and, you know, Beth kind of being thin and gaunt and a shadow of herself, right? It's I think it's interwoven here. I think it's very specific the way that the Alcott's thought about food and the role that kind of played and Bronson's kind of mental illness, right? Mm. Yeah. I'm wary of 
asking a dying person or even a grieving person to be too well organized in their thoughts about death. I think it's probably fine if some of the ideas in this chapter contradict one another. Because as we know, grieving is not a linear process. Sometimes you might have those days where you're completely serene about it. And then the Mm -hmm. very next day could be rock bottom, you know? (laughs) So it makes sense that we sort of go back and forth here that there are varying levels of acceptance. We're cycling all over the place in the five stages of grief. But by the end of the chapter, Joe has made peace with it, right? To the extent that when she comes home, it's evident, first of all, to the parents that Beth is dying. Joe doesn't even have to tell them about the conversation Mm -hmm. they had. They understand, they know. And Mr. March doesn't speak. He doesn't physically interact with the family in any way. He turns away from them. And at the same moment, Marmy reaches out to Joe and Joe goes to comfort Marmy. So it's this, the tale of this chapter is Joe stepping into the role of husband and father that her own father can't fill in this very difficult moment. Which again, if we think about kind of Bronson Alcott's own history of suicidality and mental illness, that makes sense. He might not have he probably wasn't the person you go to when you're struggling with mental illness because he was so often struggling himself, right? So it, mm. it's a burden that Joe slash Lou has to pick up and look after her mom in this difficult moment. But it, you know, it, it's also example 500 of Joe kind of taking on this masculinized role. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. And the absence of the father, this, despite the fact that Mr. March has come back so long ago, yep. just another example of him just not really being part of it. <laughs> no. He's such a marginal presence, even in the second volume. He's Sometimes he'll try to say something and people will just laugh at what he's about to say. (laughs) You know, he's very, he's not an active player at all, which again, fits in with what we've read about in that journal entry, which is at this point, you know, Bronson was, we gave up plays, father came home and Anna took the housekeeping so that mother and I could devote ourselves to her. So, okay. If father came home, he's not doing the housekeeping. He's not nursing Elizabeth, what is he doing? Mm. (laughs) Like, hello? (laughs) (laughs) He's pacing and leaning his head on mantelpieces. (laughs) Yeah, he's just so many mantle. He's like, you know what? I hear you. Those floors need to be swept. We need to like take, you know, fresh water up to Elizabeth. But this mantelpiece needs to be leaned on. (laughs) No one is addressing that. (laughs) So that's my responsibility. Yeah, maybe there was just something in Bronson that was just afraid to confront death. And he just shifted that responsibility onto his family members. <laughs> and we see, I, you know, it's, it reminds me of other statements that Lou would make when Anna's husband died. And she said, well, I must be a father to Anna's children, right? She understood herself as kind of taking up roles that men in her family couldn't or wouldn't fill. And that, that's very explicit in, at the end of this chapter. It also got me thinking about today, we understand nursing as a very feminized position, but I wonder how true that was in Alcott's day. Mm. Was nursing one of those professions that kind of began as masculine and was feminized? Oh, I'm not quite sure on the history uh-huh. of nursing. Though, I mean, it does intuitively make sense given that, you know, we know of Florence Nightingale, right? And yeah, yeah. she's remarkable in the sense that she was a woman who was nursing <laughs> soldiers, yeah. you know? Mm-hmm. And so just by virtue of that surprise that we have there or that um, her being a figure that's remarkable, I think that implies that maybe it was mostly men, especially in... Yeah more harsher, maybe like more military settings. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Obviously, especially at this point, being a doctor, that was a man's world. But I, the way that Alcott writes about her own service as a nurse, when she leaves for the Civil War hospital, she's like, 
I feel like the only son going off to war. And Mm -hmm. Bronson actually described it. He said, I've sent my only son off. So Alcott sort of was able to understand that in a masculine way, even as some of the soldiers that she nursed would be like, you are mighty motherly, ma'am. They very much perceived her as as feminine. And I was even thinking about Walt Whitman, who in this period, he's often called the Civil War nurse. And I was surprised recently, take, I, in my master's program, I took a course on Whitman and Dickinson and discovered that Whitman wasn't actually, he did not actually enlist as a nurse the same way that Alcott did. He visited hospitals and would sit with soldiers and chat with them and hang out with them. There were whispers that he was getting a little gay. <laughs> I'm sorry. Interesting. (laughs) No, but I mean, scholars suggest that he was having romantic and sexual Mm -hmm. relationships with some of the soldiers that he would visit and that he saw this as kind of a holistic part of the care he gave. So there's no evidence that Alcott had relationships with her soldiers, but there's enough kind of going on in what we understand about civil war nursing that makes me think that maybe it wasn't the 100% stereotypically feminine profession Mm -hmm. that we understand it as today. Yeah. And that's really interesting given that Joe, by far of the four March sisters is the most naturally adept at caring or nurturing or helping the convalescent. Mm -hmm. You know, that's, that that is Joe's role in the family for sure. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's one of those places that it doesn't quite, it doesn't fit into our binary conception of gender either today or back then. Because I think as much as Joe is adamant about not wanting to be a wife or a mother, Lou very much the same, although she did adopt her siblings' children later in her life, she had no interest in getting married or having biological children of her own. And yet she had this great nurturing instinct. She loved kids. She especially loved boys. And there's a later journal entry where she's older and she's ill and she's looking out a window at boys playing in a schoolyard and she's like, I long to join them. There was very much that, you know, she felt very compelled to like look after and take care of and play with kids, right? Which again, we think of as very feminine, but it's not at all clear that Alcott saw it that way because she describes herself as a father to these children and papa to the boys, right? (laughs) So Mm -hmm. it's very, she's really troubling that in an interesting way. I want to end on one little thing that sort of fascinates me about the way that Little Women is taken up and adapted, which is that in a lot of contemporary interpretations of Little Women, Beth doesn't die. (laughs) She often gets sick, though not always. And Usually when she does get sick, she comes down with a form of cancer. Joe's dramatic haircut from the first novel is sort of woven in here as an act of solidarity with Beth. And then Beth rallies and gets better by the end of the book. That's sort of the way that I've read a lot of, I'm specifically thinking of middle grade interpretations, although not always. Some people portray her as chronically disabled or dealing with a mental illness like social anxiety that she works to overcome. But It's interesting to me, this veering away from having Beth die in an adaptation. Why do you think that is? What does that say about modern attitudes toward death and dying? I mean, that's so interesting. I mean, I haven't really read or watched any modern adaptations of Little Women and certainly Mm -hmm. not any middle grade adaptations. Yeah. I mean, it's definitely a hard subject to tackle, Mm -hmm. you know, a beloved character passing away and and its function, this chapter's function in the original Little Woman is so specific to the exact relationship that Joe, that Lou Alcott has crafted between Joe and Beth yeah, models yeah. off of Lou's own relationship. And so mm-hmm. for another author or writer to to take up this story 
I think it would be uniquely challenging and yeah. how much it works would depend on how their relationship is crafted, but also through the modern lens of what we've been talking about, you know, things like disability or mental illness or, you know, assisted dying or hospice mm. care. And it's just, especially for like a middle grade ad- adaptation, it feels like a, a tall order yeah. to kind of, <laughs> you know, <laughs> yeah. yeah, I feel, I think you're right. I think it would take up the entire narrative at a certain point when oftentimes especially for younger readers, the narrative of these books, Joe getting her first article published or coming out, realize, you know, coming to terms with her sexuality and dropping the death of a sibling in there. <laughs> that can't really be a detour. It can't just be a pit stop along the road to Joe's self-discovery or literary success, <laughs> at least in these adaptations, right? Also in this chapter, I mentioned how certain chapters feel like fables. And in the original Little Woman this chapter is certainly a fable, and it's a fable where Beth is kind of used as a tool by Lou Alcott as yeah, a way to yeah. educate Joe and for Joe's betterment and Joe's <laughs> own enlightenment, whereas yeah. in other adaptations, I don't know if they would want to use Beth no. in that way. <laughs> no, I you know, I don't often talk. I am at work on a an adaptation of Little Women myself. I don't often talk about it on the podcast just because it's so in process, <laughs> but there are things from day one writing this book that I've been inc- I've been very sure about how I want to portray certain characters and events that I want to put on the page and Beth is one of those elements of the story who's always been very slippery for me I don't even know that I've made my final decision yet about how her arc is going to shake out my very earliest idea I can tell you was she's going to be chronically disabled that's what her arc is going to be But again, like kind of the more I read and thought about, especially this chapter, my partner at the time, as I was discussing this with him, was he was the kind of the person who put it in my ear that the things that Beth is saying, I was like, I don't want to put that in the mouth of a chronically disabled person. I don't want to write a person who has a disability who's like, no, mind dying. That's it's like the tide going out. And I don't mean to make that sound glib at all, but Mm -hmm. I was like, I don't want to put that in the mouth of a disabled person. And it was my partner at the time who said, those are dangerous things coming out of the mouth of a suicidal person, mm-hmm. which, which again, it really got me thinking about okay, what is the responsible way to portray this character? What would I want to say about death and dying via Beth? And it's, it's a really complicated question. And I don't blame authors for just swerving around the entire issue. Yeah. <laughs> I talked to Anna Todd on an episode of this podcast who has a little women adaptation called The Spring Girls. And her, Beth is a socially anxious lesbian whose arc is about overcoming socially social anxiety and getting a girlfriend, <laughs> which is so, <laughs> which feels so polar opposite from the events of this chapter. And yet, I think it works to an extent. If Beth has trouble seeing herself outside of the home and in an adult relationship, why might that be? Mm-hmm. For instance, right? Is there, I think her social anxiety, I think that's canon, right? We understand she's very nervous about interacting with people outside of the home. And if there, if she doesn't see herself as growing up into a woman or a wife or having a husband in not quite the same way that Joe feels, but she certainly feels those things, I think it's worth asking why, right? Mm-hmm. You were saying something when we spoke earlier about you're like, yeah, to me, Beth is an NB asexual femme. <laughs> Do you want to say yes. more about that? <laughs> oh my goodness, yes. I that slipped my mind, but yes, for sure. I in my head, the four March sisters are just four different genders or like four <laughs> different depictions of yeah. gender. And you know, Meg is mm-hmm. the classic woman. She's mm-hmm. just 
like a mother. She's soft, gentle, matronly, you know, she's very classic that. Amy is high femme. She's chic. (laughs) I feel like she has a more specific craft representation yeah, presentation yeah. of her gender versus Meg and then Joe was trans mask and <laughs> Beth to me though is yeah. in my head at least Beth to me is femme but asexual envy because yeah. she I think this kind of ties back to what I was saying about how in the book Beth never displays any sort of she never reaches womanhood, right? She yeah, never yeah. reaches a moment of sexual awakening. She doesn't mm-hmm. have any romance, even laughs and scoffs at the idea that she could ever have a crush on Lori. You know? Right, yeah. She's oh. totally untainted by sexuality <laughs> and in, in a sort of, in a state of maybe prolonged adolescence. Mm-hmm. But I think it could be, you know, her being an asexual NB. <laughs> yeah, I completely I hear that 100%. And it's occurring to me, we're almost at the hour. We have not even talked about the Beth crush on Lori thing, <laughs> so, which, you know, which it kind of reaches its end as an arc here. When Joe says, I thought you liked him. And Beth is like, what are you talking about? Yeah. <laughs> I just did the episode on the previous chapter where Lori proposes to Joe and they have a very long argument in which at no point is Joe ever like, I can't marry you because obviously Beth is in love with you, which again, (laughs) of all of the ground they tread and the arguments they go over, that never comes up until the very end of the chapter when Joe is thinking like, well, let me think about Beth and Lori for a second, which if Joe sincerely believed that, that kind of would have been thing one she said to Lori, which is Lori, I hear you, but I can't do this because Beth is in love with you. And that just, that doesn't happen. So I get, I doubt the sincerity. Of that theory on Joe's part. And I, you know, I think Beth is rightly like, why would you ever think that? In in real life, again, I we hear about Elizabeth Alcott having a little romance. So we know that Alcott never had she had maybe one significant romantic relationship with a man. And even that is sort of disputed whether it was the degree to which that was self-identification, wanting to be like him or whatnot. But like we know that this was a part of Elizabeth Alcott's life, if even to a small degree. It's it's kind of the case where just because she passed away so early, there's a lot of questions that never even had a chance to be explored, let alone answered. And you know, and I think this is one of them. I think the question of what do we do with an adult death is it's something that confuses a lot of people. And I think that's why authors, including yours truly, are a little bit unsure about what tack to take with Beth and her role in the story. So. Wow, that that was a whirlwind. That was a very sad whirlwind. I think the title of this chapter, Beth's Secret, that's got to be the saddest lingerie brand in the world. <laughs> it's next to Victoria's Secret. Everything is gray. <laughs> it sounds cheeky, but really the cheeky no. bit is just that we're weeping in the corner. <laughs> yes, exactly right. <laughs> Hannah, thank you so much for being here today. Where can people find you online? How can they support you and your work? Yes. So I have a website. It's www.hannahseo.com, H-A-N-N-A-H-S-E-O.com. I'm also primarily on Twitter. I think that's my social media of choice, despite everything. (laughs) And I'm at a hannahseo on Twitter. Yeah. Fabulous. So go check out Hannah's journalism. As always, I'm your host, Peyton Thomas. You can find me online at peytonthomas.ca. You can buy my book, Both Sides Now just about wherever you buy books. And you can also now find us on Instagram. We are at Joe's Boys Pod. Feel free to follow us there. Ask us any questions you have. Well, usually a couple of weeks before we have guests, 
I throw up a post being like, what questions do you have for this illustrious guest? So be sure to follow us there, get the lowdown on what's coming, and we'll see you next week as we continue the slow, sad march toward Beth dying, I guess. (laughs) All right. Take care, everyone. Thanks so much for listening. (laughs) 